0: Welcome to Lectionary Call-In for Tuesday, September 26th of 2023, where laypersons and pastors gather for about 45 minutes each week to discuss the Gospel Lectionary for the coming Sunday. And the Sunday text we're discussing is for October 1st. Each Tuesday, we call in from wherever we may be at 6.30 a.m. Eastern time to participate. Our team's working to be faithful to year A, and that puts us on the Gospel of Matthew. We hope this discussion will provide areas of focus and reflection and here's how it works. We develop perspectives independently after the leadoff person shares informative questions, and then in this virtual discussion room, we share, encourage, and challenge each other. And here are the folks joining us in today's discussion.
1: Sarah Mickelson in Tampa.
0: Bill Hall, St. Petersburg, Florida. I'm Don Upton in Charlotte, North Carolina. Our lead this week is Bill Hull. He's going to read the scripture, feed us into the scripture so we have some context and, and roll out some questions. Hello, Bill. Hope you're doing well today.
2: I am. Thank you, Don, Sarah. Welcome to my team members and to those who join us later. It is good to be in conversation. A brief background. Update and then we will move To the scripture and I do so Because in the lectionary We have taken quite a turn Uh, Last Week uh, we looked at The story of the generous Landowner and the workers in the Vineyard Uh, all the Workers no matter when they were hired During the day were paid the same Daily wage In chapter 20 the early part Of now we're we've Skip the number of passages, and we're in the latter part of chapter uh, 21. In, in the meantime, uh, Jesus again predicted his suffering and death. The mother of James and John asks Jesus to give her sons a special place in the kingdom. Jesus heals two blind men, and then he enters Jerusalem. That's the important turn that we have taken He cleanses the temple, curses the fig tree because it is barren of fruit. And then in a moment, I will read the passage where there's a challenge to Jesus' authority and then a parable that he tells about uh, two kinds of sons. So far, by my count, in Matthew's gospel, today will be the 16th parable that Jesus tells followed by six more. Um, The first part of this week's narrative, the interchange between Jesus and the religious authorities, is told essentially in the same form in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptics. But the second portion, the parable, is recorded only in Matthew, as was true of last week's story of the generous landowner. So we just note that Matthew alone chooses To tell those two parables Now I found it helpful In Frederick Dale Bruner's Commentary on Matthew uh, That he Notes this week's parable Is the first of three The next two weeks In this we will be dealing with parables Uh, They all deal According to Bruner with faith This week the authority of Jesus Christ next week Uh, The rejecting tenets as a narrative about the ministry of Jesus Christ And the third one, the two kinds of wedding guests Will focus on our understanding of our mission in light of Jesus Christ Now the scripture, Matthew 21, 23-32 And it reads from the New Revised Standard Version, updated edition The word of the Lord, let us listen. When Jesus entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him as he was teaching, and they said, by what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority? Jesus said to them, I will also ask you one question. If you tell me the answer, then I will also tell you by what authority I do these things. Did the baptism of John come from heaven, or was it of human origin? And the religious leaders argue with one another. If we say from heaven, Jesus will say to us, Why then did you not believe John the Baptist? But if we say of human origin, we are afraid of the crowd for all regard John as a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. Jesus continued, what do you think? A man had two sons. He went to the first and said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. The son answered, I will not. But later he changed his mind and went. The father went to the second and said the same. And this son answered, I go, sir. But he did not go. Jesus asked, which of the two did the will of his father? The chief priests and elders answered, the first son. Jesus said to them, I tell you, truly I tell you, The tax collectors and the prostitutes are going into the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him, and even after you saw it, you did not change your minds and believe him. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Okay, Sarah, I'm going to come to you with this first question. In verses 24 to 25a, Jesus asked the religious leaders their opinion about the authority of John the Baptist. Was it from heaven or from humans? Instead of offering a direct answer to the question, the chief priests and the elders calculate among themselves what the responses are. Of Jesus and the crowds will be how does the church today Sarah engage in similar calculations rather than speaking the truth of the gospel Sarah
1: seems to me to be more about intention and action why are the religious leaders questioning Jesus's authority Their intention is not in seeking the truth, but in seeking a method to undermine and neutralize Jesus' teaching. The religious leaders want to ascertain and manage public perception more than determine the integrity and the source of John's authority. What answer would sustain their position and power the best, they consider, the response seems to be determined by what would garner more public support rather than what is truth. And they, as the church of their day, um, do not seek a course of action based upon the search for truth or scripture or divine instruction. They instead trusted their own understanding, and they, they don't seem to reflect on any relationship with the divine in their deliberation. So how do we, the modern church, measure up to that same adjudication? What are our intentions? Why do we go to church? To be seen? To see other people? To appear holier than we are? Are we in pursuit of a relationship with God? And as a church, we're called to stand steadfast in relationship with those around us. Love asks us to consider and support the needs of others as much, if not more so, than our own. As we actively reconcile our lives to our faith that we profess, do we surrender our desires um, to better serve those around us who are maybe the least? Um, what points, at what points of friction do we me- seek to measure um, Jumping around. In what points of friction do we encounter? What points of friction do we encounter as we work to love our neighbors as ourselves? I think that's really the difficult bit. Um, do we bear witness to the source of power and authority of Jesus? Do we seek reconciliation more than we seek being right? And uh, do we seek to measure popular opinion or question what is truth like the religious leaders? of Jesus' time and Pilate, who's going to measure it shortly, or do we seek truth like Jesus does? And that's really, I think, hard. That's a very hard walk.
2: Thank you, Sarah. I particularly was captured by your phrase, points of friction. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Don, your thoughts on this question? Two, two
0: words in the uh, question jumped out at me. First is the church, church, uh, which made me think about, okay, what is the church in this context? And I think I need to understand what the church is to answer. And the other is you. sort of the word calculation. What, is, what does that mean? And uh, so I, I dove into both. So uh, Jesus is performing a kind of diagnostic in order to engage and for all to hear. And I've, I feel called after 2,000 years to listen. And uh, it can be applied to a very local situation, but I think it just kind of rings through the ages. So he's doing this diagnostic, and then surprisingly, they're doing their diagnostic too. Two different kinds of diagnostics going on. Is one right and one wrong? I just think it's revealing on both counts. I use the word diagnostic all the time in terms of leaders and groups. It's good to perform diagnostics, and when I talk about it, it's, you know, we need to figure out how we govern our behaviors, how how enterprises are governed, how we approach the day every day. Uh, and most of all, what platform are you working on as a leader, as a person, as a church? What's, what's the big assumption that you believe to be true, that you are pursuing every day? So we have Jesus doing this diagnostic, and then we have another group doing it, kind of a different kind of diagnostic. When it comes to... what what worked for me is thinking about the church, which is the center of your question. uh, The diagnostic on one hand is how I respond, which in in terms of Christian discernment, it's, it's okay, right? How we talk about that. We talk about that as we look at parables and the gospel every week when we're together, how does Jesus respond relative to the truth? In this case, we're doing another diagnostic, which is, What do I say? But Jesus going, you know, we're talking about how we respond. We have another diagnostic, which is what do we say? Which is a whole different kind of diagnostic. Fair game, fluid, flexible, very different. How and what? Uh, How do I answer versus what am I going to answer? What's the content? Two stark differences. So if I look at your word calculation, you say how does the – church engage in similar calculation, and I'm breaking the rules of translation, but I'm going to look at that word calculation. The American Heritage Dictionary says, careful, often cunning estimation and planning of likely outcomes, especially to advance one's own interest. That's good. That's really good. It jumps out at me is planning, likely outcomes, not likely truths, not proper answer, it's likely, it's fluid, it's dynamic. An estimate formed in the mind by comparing the various circumstances and facts which bear on the matter at hand. Words like wariness comes to mind as we go in there. And I like the word cunning as well. The big difference between how you say it and what platform we're built on. So now I'll leap to what the church is. You brought it, where is this in the church? Is the church made up of people who calculate, see definition, or is it made up of people in the diagnostic that are responding based on a shared fact, a shared truth? Yes or no? (laughs) And in your questions that are to come, there's a timing issue about when when you figure it out and all those things. But this is is real clarity for me on this. And each week, We all, many of the folks that listen here to this podcast, go to the Nicene Creed or the Apostles' Creed, and they say, one holy Catholic and apostolic church, one, all together, built on a fundamental understanding. Now, how we say it is a matter of Christian discernment, but what we say is not in play. And then uh, from the Apostles' Creed, I believe in the Holy Spirit and the holy Catholic church, all one unity. There is nothing in the second diagnostic of what we're going to say under the given circumstances that rings uh, towards unity
2: for me. That's what I've got, Bill. Thank you, Don. And listening to you, it struck me. I didn't go to the dictionary as you did with the word cunning. Uh, that That's a helpful reminder. You know, my grandmother used to say to me, Bill, it's not so much what you say, it's how you say it. There's something appropriate about considering how to convey a message <clears throat> this is a different issue that's why I use the word calculate it, it's, it's not so much let me say it in a way that it can be received it's how can I protect myself uh, so thank you for that reminder um, I've referred already to the commentary by Frederick Dale Bruner on Matthew it's an excellent two volume set Um, He affirms that while in the biblical narrative Those who challenge Jesus are Jewish religious leaders He says this parable speaks to all followers of Jesus Christ Then and through the ages and now And that's the spirit in which I'm asking How does the church today engage in calculation? Um, Interesting, I've, I've noted that this this part of the narrative, not the parable, this narrative is in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Luke, I hadn't caught this before, adds the statement by the chief priests and scribes that if they deny the authority of John the Baptist, quote, all the people will stone us. Now, my own reaction is, what? What? <laughs> But that's how fearful they were of offending anybody. So Luke kind of enhances the drama of the fear and the calculating nature, the cunning nature of these religious leaders. Since the cleansing of the temple preceded this interchange between Jesus and the religious leaders, a part of the conflict may be over money. Likely the temple profited from letting vendors use the worship building for commerce. The location in the temple is heightened when we note that this interchange in the next two parables will, that we will study all occur in the temple. It is not until the first verse, verse of chapter 24 that Jesus leaves the temple. Um, the church throughout history has accommodated to the prevailing culture, crusades, slavery, racial segregation, nationalism, political dominance. And Robert, Robert Weringa has just finished the five-week adult faith formation class at Palmasia on Christ and Culture by Niebuhr, inviting us to reflect on the church's struggle with the influence of culture. How much... Are we influenced and how much do we accommodate? Question two, and Don, I'm going to come to you first. The parable of the two sons presents the tension between contrasting responses and actual follow-up behaviors. The first son responds with rejection, but upon further reflection, changed his decision and did what was requested. This can be seen as representing the tax collectors and prostitutes. By the way, some scholars question that these, this narrative and the parable that follows are appropriately juxtaposed. I don't understand that debate, because I think the first son is representative of the tax collectors and prostitutes. The second son quickly agrees to do what is asked but does not follow through, reflecting the situation of the chief priests and elders. Don, be very personal. How do you experience and deal with this tension in your life? This passage, after many cycles and readings, tells me on a personal
0: level that uh, there's one thing in here that doesn't apply to me. And my life. So, uh, no finger pointing allowed. Um, everything here rings true. What's happening is Jesus is doing his diagnostic, the way the, the folks are trying to figure it out, the work in the parable, it all sticks. It really, it really sticks. Uh, at, but what it does, I think, is for readers, it reveals that. Uh, there's a point where you get started. There's there's this boundary, this line you cross. There's a clear starting point to live in, uh, and and preparing our hearts to think about the how, not the what. How do we live? How do we serve? How do we answer under the circumstances? I mean, and Matthew is filled with lots of delicate, and sometimes bold and strident answers all the way through, with a center on. Peter is the rock his declaration is the rock which is where we kind of began a few weeks ago getting into this piece of Matthew the declaration itself is the rock and that's that's where we all get started so are we started we started working we started loving start living or not and uh, so some people get started uh, fully uh, in history long before I did they got started 2,000 years ago in some cases so I, I could view this as a, a span of history of where, where am I in getting started uh, or on a particular day uh, this year. Uh, the labeling everyone in here as a broken or selfish outsider, and Jesus talks about people, categories of people, which I think he ultimately rejects, they get on with life. He lists, he lists people, in many cases, hated, despised, outsiders, but they're they're gone. They're over the horizon. They started walking earlier in the day. They're gone. You want to catch up? Wanna get started? Uh they went ahead and got to work. Uh they got on with it. Uh and I think uh why these calculations seem so important to consider you you know making it personal. Am I do I begin the day, do I understand when I start calculating is so a follow-of-the-way or not? And uh and I think I'm obliged to think about personal triggers where I want to evade, where I want to not answer or answer the – give a different answer than I'm already obliged to. Uh, and I, I think, for Billy you get personal. For me, I have to think about the personal triggers of the day. We all have them. Fear, a desire to evade, uh, not the right time, fatigue, wanting to be sure you keep a circle of friends, wanting to retain something you believe is valuable. And I think those simple triggers, I think Jesus is highlighting that, that, you know, if you're letting those triggers, those things are firing, like neurons firing in the brain. It's like, no, 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 there's another way, there's a better way. If you're listening to those things, you're not ready to give the right answer, and you're not giving the right answer. It's, it comes off pretty simply for me in this this reading. I think because, uh, finally, the kind of calculations we're talking about as I understand them, this is so Matthew, they produce results. Let's not be confused here. We do this. I do this. I equivocate. I I think about not giving the right answer because in the day's world, it looks like it gives results to people. Like the son that goes, yes, I will. He thinks he's captured the father's heart. Maybe he did. Oh, no. What if the father doesn't know he didn't go to the field? And father loves him more. And the father rewards him. What if? So, you know, it's it's a new way of thinking. The gospel is a different kind of love. But, you know, I think part of the burden is we are trained up. I think more than ever when we listen to public officials and we, we measure the value of our lives. Like, you don't have to give the answer. You know. So, what does a follower of the way do when confronted with the desire to calculate? And I think we have. That's why we work together. That's why we hang out together. That's why we declare on on the Sabbath the church is one. We are one together. What does it take to do that? That's what I got, Bill.
2: Thank you. Uh, I was captured by your image of the triggers. Uh, Stephen Covey and his book Seven Hab of highly effective people talks about between stimulus and response is a space (laughs) and in that space lies our capacity to choose. Sarah, your thoughts on uh, this admittedly very personal question, how do you experience and deal with this tension in your life?
1: I question why my words and actions are so often at odds with each other. I mean, it, ref- it, it it prompts self-reflection. It, re- it prompts um, some real hard thinking on our own part. It says, why do we wish to be perceived as something other than what we are? Why do we pretend? Um, why do we put up the facade? Why do we um, project one thing when we're something else altogether? So... Um, why is the perceived truth more valuable than the real truth? To the people around us or to us? Um, and, and how often do our words and our actions contradict each other like those of the two sons in this parable? And I, I ask those questions internally as, as I'm walking through my day. I try to approach the conflicts in my world with that idea. Is my goal to be perceived as a a particular role or a particular style of of leadership or is my desire to have an outcome that's effective and valuable to the entire organization or group that I'm working with. Um, And I do think actions speak louder than words. And when, I I think people clue you in, and I look for these clues, when their actions and their words are incongruent. I know that I'm not getting the straight story um so what will i take action to do versus what do i want to be perceived as pursuing <coughs> Sorry my dog has decided to be vocal at this point Um it makes me question how strong my resolve is and my resolve is to to pursue or what do i what am i prioritizing So uh, what what to do what is asked of me rather than what's easy or what I want. You know, I'm often confronted by libertarian ideas, um, and I'll call them the, in our house, it's usually people who are younger than me, who I gave birth to, who are presenting me with their perspective or their understanding of a situation. And, And I say, well, why are you doing it that way? And they hear it as criticism, and I'm hearing it as what, what made you elect that path, what, what choice brought you to this decision. And, um, and then I suggest, you know, try folding the towel this way, or if you, did the, the bath, if you cleaned the bathroom in this sequence of events, it works for you instead of against you. So I present my thinking, and, and my father would say perhaps in a manipulative way, but I present my thinking as the alternative pathway to something that's the same outcome. So it makes me question the sequence of events. It makes me question the words I use. It makes me think about what I prioritize and what I consider as time well spent. Because sometimes I think about choices I'm making based on Do I want to give up that two hours of my life to watch that movie, or do I want to take the time to do whatever that activity is away from the other choices I would have made? Intention is valued. I think that's the other thing. In this particular parable, we are given the present of looking at intention, and actions are valued. So words without actions are inconsequential. They're just air. They're just filling the air with nothing. So it makes me question of where do I want to put, where do I want to add value and where do I want to observe?
2: Thank you, Sarah. As I worked on this passage this week and framing this question, Frankly, it was a bit of a downer, (laughs) because I thought, ooh, how often, Don, the triggers (laughs) do not lead me in a way that I later upon further reflection am comfortable with. And we focus on the gospel lesson each week in the lectionary. There are other uh, passages, and I read them, and... It was helpful to me to read from the Philippians passage for this week, uh, two sentences that I will read. Therefore, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed me, not only in my presence, but much more now in my absence, work out your own salvation with tr- fear and trembling. And here's the encouragement. For it is God who is at work in you, enabling you both to will and to work for his good pleasure, both to desire to do what's congruent with the gospel and then actually do it. I, I like that To God helps you will and work. That doesn't let us off the hook, but it means we're not in this alone. So I, took some encouragement from that, and the thought occurred to me that when my conscience gets challenged, that's the work of the Holy Spirit. That's an opportunity to do what Don, you, and Sarah talked about, dealing with the incongruities. And it is helpful to me to remember that I am both sons. I am the one who resisted and then obeyed. And I'm the other son who said all the right things but failed to do so. And I am both the religious leaders and I am the tax collectors and prostitutes. I am both of those. Um, I, in fact, at times project a spirit of faithfulness to the Spirit of Jesus Christ But fail to embody Jesus In my thoughts words and actions I tell you what When I'm out driving Especially on the interstate And someone unnecessarily Dangerously cuts me off I won't tell you what I think (laughs) It is not very Christ like And at times We are capable of being Faithful Uh, Also In verse 29, the first son who refused to do what the father asked later, we're told, changed his mind. In verse 32, Jesus notes that the religious leaders did not change. So while the word only occurs twice, that's at the heart of this. It's about change. And I'll finish with with the help of the Holy Spirit. I want to remember and embrace Frederick Dale Bruner's observation that, quote, authority more concerned for popularity than for truth is spurious, In quote. Authority more concerned for popularity than for truth is spurious. Okay, the third question. <clears throat> After the chief priests and the elders declined to answer Jesus' question about the authority of John the Baptist, Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. What might be the reason for this response by Jesus, and how does this statement impact you? For me, it's a reminder that each of us, not just these religious leaders, each of us must reflect and decide for ourselves who Jesus is, and whether or not we will believe and obey. We have some sense of the truth of the gospel. It's up to us to decide what we do with it. It also reminds me that repentance and conversion are a process, not a one-time event. I decided decades ago to commit my life to Christ, but I continue to decide moment by moment what I will do and whether or not my actions will be guided by the spirit of Jesus or by my own self-centered narcissistic uh, tendencies. And these actions are to be informed and guided by the moral and ethical boundaries of our faith. I noted earlier that this early Part of the week's narrative is in Mark and Luke in almost identical form. Another similarity is that each of the synoptic gospels following this week's account, Jesus without Paul's goes on to another parable, which will bring into judgment the obedience of the religious leaders. Jesus presents his message, and then it is up to us whether or not we hear and obey Jesus moves on and does not linger to argue or debate. Uh, I, I like that. and with the parable of the sower and the four soils echoing in my mind, it behooves me to embrace the warning of Jesus in Matthew 7:21 Not everyone who says to me, "Lord, Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does... The will of my Father in heaven. So I am encouraged to remember it is God at work in me, enabling me both to will and to work. And I am also guided by the Father of his Afflicted Son, who said to Jesus, "I believe. Help my unbelief." Don.
0: I think this prompts this question of exactly what was John saying? And as a reminder, there's, this is not a discussion about what John meant or what he said. And I think that can be confusing. It, it, I think the subtext is John was very clear. John stated things that he believed to be a fact. That is what's being discussed. Where did that come from? On what authority? It's not, let's let's interpret John. That is not the subject here, I don't think. It's where did the authority come from? So no question of facts at all. And I think that helps me answer the question about why did Jesus not go there in the end? Why did he not answer the question? John's ministry is so close to the plan of the creator. The declaration is so exact so perfect, it is not up for discussion, and Jesus isn't going to allow that to happen. He's not interested in that. Jesus will not deliver his answer into a group that has failed the diagnostic that we've been talking about. Uh, Not now, at least. I don't think there's a finality of this. This is about getting started. He lists groups of people who are not appreciated in the society that he's talking to at the time. and They already get started. They're already over the hill. They're gone. Want to catch up? Want to get started? Nope, not today. We're focused, We're focused on getting to the bottom of authority. Fine. There, You can't even see them. They're so far up the hill. Get started when you can, but I'm not going to engage in this. You fail the diagnostic. Not now. Not at this hour for you. Uh, they haven't arrived. And, and, Sarah, I'm agreeing with you and disagreeing with you on the words because I I you know, words don't matter or words do matter. I think Jesus isn't interested in having John's message and his authority being cut to pieces with words. So in that way, words matter. It's like, you know, the work of Christ, the mission, everything's already moving, going. Have you started? No. Maybe tomorrow, maybe tomorrow. In the meantime, we're going to cut this to pieces. That's not that's not what the mission of Jesus is about. We're not going to have that. Uh, and in that way, the words matter. Uh, so he, instead, he gives them this parable for the ages that I think most readers kind of jump to. They get they get it. They understand. And I really appreciate, Bill. You're like you're both sons. Yeah, you're all the people. I think that's a great way to start. You know, that way it gets us away from all the localisms and culturalisms and this is humanity. It's it's one of the beautiful parables. Uh, so they are not yet equipped to explain. How about that? I'm being more gentle now in the diagnostic. They are not yet equipped to explain. Christ, I don't think in Matthew, is interested in debating a matter of authority. I, can't, I actually can't. He doesn't, right, Bill? He doesn't. He does not debate authority. That is a line of which Jesus will not cross. He will not let that get cut to pieces. Final note on that is when anybody, anyone, me, anybody engages in trying to calculate what the answer should be, not how to answer, but what the answer is, that often goes to identity and protecting power and what we, what, what a person, what I would view as my standing or my ability to do something else next. It's almost like putting, you know, people say, keep your powder in reserve. It's like, well, I'm not going, I'm not going to, I don't have to answer that question. Or I don't even have to give the right answer. You know, I don't have to do that right now. And I think if it goes to identity, it makes shapeshifters out of all of us, out of me. Shape, like, my own identity is fluid. Ugh, icky. But yeah, right? I don't want to be that. I don't want to speak that word. I don't want to state that assumption. I do not want to say that as fact. I like the fluidity of life. I can be anybody I want to be. Today. I, can, I can answer the what in different ways, or I can reserve the what. I think that's where Jesus gets so sad and frustrated. Go, let's go, say it. Let's go. Do what Peter did. Peter fails afterwards, but he's the rock in his declaration. So I think there's a I – think, I think the, the temptation – and I'm using, you know, mythology and paganism, and it's like the desire to be a shapeshifter is interesting to us, to, to me. You know, I don't have to land. The one church lands. <laughs> you get on with your life, you get to work, you're a follower of the way. And I, that's the case, the subject of authority – who is Jesus? What is God doing? If I'm a shapeshifter, then I worship a God that's a shapeshifter. Uh-oh. Because there's, they're saying, this is what God is today. Or I don't have to address what God is. I don't have to address what the creator is going to be. That sounds really human to me. You know, it's almost like, well, God isn't very happy today. Or God doesn't want to disclose Who the Creator is today, or this is the God I have today, or God is peaceful today, and this is the Jesus wants no part of that at all. This is established, and very soon in the gospel, Jesus is going to say, It's finished, it's done. You know, and there are people along the way that are already moving. Watch them, they're going. You may label them as people that you don't like, but They've already gotten started. Try it; you'll like it. But when you want to discuss the foundation of what God is and the authority of God, no, thank you, no, thank you. That's what I got, Bill.
2: Thank you for that reminder of the image of shapeshifters. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll,
0: I'll, are they worshiping a protean God? I mean, I, is it you know? That's
1: that. That's not the gospel.
2: Right. Thank
1: you. Sarah? Don, your conversation about shape-shifting reminded me of Hamilton and the, the tension between Aaron Burr's character and Hamilton's character and the conversation between them that says, what do you stand for? What will you fight for? And Aaron Burr seems to be, wait for it, wait for it. And Hamilton's now is the time. So this tension is in us, too. Um, I think that by their deliberation, the religious leaders' deliberation, Jesus understands their heart. They're not interested in the good news Jesus is bringing. Their priority seems to be sustaining their power, their earthly power structures, that have kept them in their lavish lifestyles and giving them their respected social standing. We are very comfortable in that situation. We want to sustain what we have already and possibly grow what we have to have more. And and I don't know whether I'm talking about my 401K or I'm talking about my bank account currently or I'm talking about the circle of influence. So all of those things can be labeled that way. And Jesus' line of inquiry sharpens the focus on who loses when we sustain the status quo of power and policy and social systems. Because that's Jesus' focus. Are we not called to stand with Jesus and those on the margins rather than those within the bell curve? And there's the big punch If these religious leaders could not recognize the authority and the righteousness by which John was baptizing people, they would most certainly not recognize the same authority at work in the teachings of Jesus. So it was almost like a litmus test to go, are you ready to hear this? Are you ready to understand this gospel? Are you ready to meet it head on? No, not yet. We're not ready to let go of our power or what we want or what will sustain our style of living. And I think that that's a tension that we face regularly, if not every day. Um, and sometimes every hour. We have to make determination about, do I tell people what they want to hear, or do I tell them the truth? And sometimes, you know, I'll confess, I'm just not up to the, the battle. I'm just not. And I just want to say, whatever. walk away Um, and I I wonder how often I do God a disservice when I do that
2: thank you team Don back to you thank
0: you and we are out of time but what what fun to get back to this passage in this parable every three years it's just great. Bill, really a highlight for me is when you claim to be all, put all the people in it. I think that was that really called to me. And, Sarah, uh, your words, are you ready? I, I, we, we write the title of the podcast when it gets posted, posted after uh, it's over. Uh, surprise, this, this podcast is going to be called Are You Ready? It's perfect. It's perfect. And for folks listening in, Palmacea Presbyterian Church makes this podcast possible. They're at 3501 West San Jose. That's in Tampa, Florida. And for more information, you can go to palmacia.org. That's P-A-L-M-A-C-E-I-A.org. Check that site out for great sermons, discussions of lectionary, uh, disagreements about that lectionary, great conversations, meditations, prayers, outstanding music, opportunities to take communion. Uh, we always recommend that to you. And you're always welcome, and we'll see you next time.